From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specializing in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word. Describe it. From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. We're all for keeping things fresh here and are excited for this season. At the start of season three, I quoted from Little Things, Big Things Grow. Currently, with over 200,000 listens throughout 13 countries. I didn't realise the true impact this podcast has until I'm stopped by strangers to be asked when the next episode will drop or thanked for capturing the stories we do. It's not just me. It takes a dynamic team to do what we do. With that, we present you season four. Along with a new look, we welcome new sponsors and thank them for making this season possible. As we approach horse sale season, I'm looking forward to be working with the team that hosts the Dolby Australian Stock Horse Sale. Together with the Darling Downs Australian Stock Horse Society, along with Ray White Rural Dolby, we will bring you two bonus episodes talking all things camp draft and sale. Keep your ears pricked for this and enjoy season four. We kick off season four with a guest that's no stranger to the dust and stock routes of Australia. His boot prints and horse tracks are implanted across our nation as he's navigated thousands of cattle from Australia's top end all the way to New South Wales and everywhere in between. He's no stranger to making headlines for doing what he does best and has even landed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for the Brinkworth Cattle Drive. Bill Little is widely known as Australia's boss drover and joins host Kay Becker to share his story. From the saddle. From the saddle. Good afternoon, Bill. How are you? Good, Kay. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. There's a drive of cattle that will go down in Australian history and that was moving a mob of cattle that was commonly referred to as the Brinkworth Drive. Was it 20,000 head of cattle that you were responsible for at the start? Yeah, okay, it was 20,000. Brinkworth bought 20,000 head of AA Company. They were meant to be all heifers, but when they got to 18,000 heifers and they had no heifers left, so they gave him 2,000 steers. So it made up to 20,000, yeah. And so... The final destination for those cattle was Hay in New South Wales. Yeah, it was your Audrey Station. Uh, Tom had bought your Audrey Station at Hay, and uh, that was the destination. Let's just paint a picture. He rings you and goes, Bill, I've got 20,000 head in the territory, and they've got to get to Hay, and I want you to do the job. What was your first reaction? Yeah, um, elders actually, well, Peter Bryan, for elders, everybody yep. knows Peter on. He's a pretty well-known agent, livestock agent. He actually approached me first and, and put me in the picture that this could be going to happen. And then uh, Brinkworth actually came up. Tom came up. I had cattle on the road at Bark Alden. Um, they were actually AA cattle that I had on the road. Steers. <laughs> and um, he came and approached me to do that. He said, if I buy these cattle, can we do it? Um, I said, well, I can't see why not. But at that time... You know, there were still quite a few drovers that worked for me then that aren't working now. So there was some good men around me and I knew some good men to do the job and, um, you know, we took it on. 
So you would have had to logistically sit down and go, okay, what's the maximum number? How are we going to do this? Did all of those decisions land squarely at your feet? No, Tom was uh, Tom was very good. He just said to me, you take the cattle. The delivery was long reach, actually. Naturally, you can't deliver 20,000 head onto the stock yet. Even in smaller molds, it won't accommodate that number of cattle. So we had to drop some. Uh, we started some on Aramac on the Mutterborough side. We started some a little further down towards Blackhall, and we even started some as far in as Mitchell just to sort of split the cattle up a bit. So what was the average size mob to send off with each individual driver? Yeah, well, in Queensland, because we've got no cap on the size mob, we had mobs of 2,000, but we go back to the same old story. I had some very good men then, you know, men like Barry Reid, uh, Bobby Reid, Tony Purcell, just to mention a few of them, and they were very capable of handling those big mobs. But when we got to New South Wales, they have restrictions on with the PP boards on the side of the mob, so we had to employ more drivers. We gave some New South Wales, or some uh, was at that time, I don't know whether they're still working, but some good drivers in New South Wales, we gave them, a, uh, broke the mobs down, so we made three mobs out of two type of thing, you know. So did you actually have a mob yourself? Yeah, yeah, no, I had a mob the whole time and went right into your ordinary. Some of them had detoured and went different ways to, because when we started that trip, the forecast for the year was going to be a ripper season or a ripper winter, going to be a wet winter, wah, 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 and further we get into the winter, the drier it got, and then they said, oh, it's going to be a great spring. Well, it never rained in the spring. <laughs> so <laughs> just the driest time. So we had the – that was the biggest problem was picking routes where we, we could get through, you know. Yeah. So was that your responsibility? Well, I did give a lot of responsibility to the better drivers, um, you know, with having a little bit of input, but – you know, it's up to them. It's like me now with driving for Conway's at the moment for Olivia Martin and uh, Boss, their partnership with the children, but they give me the responsibility because that's my job, you know. I know the country, I know where the water is, and it's up to me to go and have a look and find out where the best route is. Um, so no, reasonably, most of them, I told them sort of roughly where I wanted them to go, but they, they went and picked it out and looked about and worked their way in. During that, did you sort of give a few younger fellows, I guess, what you would regard as a kickstart into the world of driving, or did you think there's too many cattle, this is a big job, and I can't afford for things not to go right? Well, we did have uh, Dion Prow. He was only very young, uh, Billy Prow's son. Yep. Um, he took a mob and did a good job, Like uh, fellows like that. And they talked to me all the time, like, you know, I was on the phone all the time, and, you know, that's the beauty of mobile phones, I suppose, and they were, they were reasonably good in those days, or you could get to where you had service, but, yeah, they'd, they'd tell me what was going on, and I'd have a bit of input, and I did go for a drive, you know, I'd go for a drive now and again and have a look at them all, and, yeah, we did, some young fellas got opportunity out of it, yeah. So were you in the, the lead, or did you bring up the rear with your mob, or were you in the middle? I was the first mob into your Audrey, but... I was probably one of the last to get the mobs because I sort of got all the rest of them started, but I went a more direct route, I suppose, and I was the first one into Audrey, and then uh, I think um, Bobby Reed came in next. Barry Reed was a bit after him. Yeah, they just came in, in uh, and a couple of New South Wales drivers came in between them, I think, but yeah, I was the first one to get to Audrey. And so what was the time frame? Well, he didn't really have a time frame. I think the longest mob were, I think Barry Reid might have only been the longest on the road. He might have, must have been the early starter. I think he was almost seven months with his cattle. Yeah. 
there was no time frame because as we got going, the season got worse. So then we had to start detouring and some blokes ended up well away from a direct route, you know, just to get around where they could get some feed. And New South Wales have got a different setup to Queensland and some of those PP boards down there are a little bit hard to handle. They make their own rules and, you know, we don't want to see Queensland end up like that. But, um, yeah, no, mob sizes were a big issue. And in the TP boards in New South Wales, we're used to telling people where to go. Well, I reckon that's the driver's responsibility to pick where he wants to go because he's the experienced man that should know where to take his cattle, where they're going to do best, you know. That was a bit of an issue. But um, at the end of the day, we dealt with it and we got them through. So what does Bill Little's camp look like in 2013? Well, we, um, you know, we quite often, anybody will say to me, oh, yeah, these stuff. Back in the old days, we didn't have this and we didn't have that and we didn't have electricity and we didn't have electric fences and, you know, we didn't have communication. But the mobs were a lot smaller and there were a lot more experienced available men that were drovers, you know, like it was easy to pick up ringers in those days. And like I said, it would have been a very rare occasion to see a mob of over 1,500 in the old days. A lot of those fat cattle that used to walk out of Territory were in mobs of eight, 900. So... The difference is we've got a lot of cattle and we've got issues like traffic. If we're on these routes where the main highways are, which is, you know, fairly regularly. In those days, the stock route supervisors were very experienced men. They would have been drovers that come out of the bush where now you're likely to get a truck driver or a roof shooter or something that's trying to tell you where to go or what to do. And <laughs> that all adds to making it a bit difficult. And we all don't mind being told what to do, but providing it's somebody that knows what they're talking about. But anyway, we, we get through. But getting back to how how our day starts with our gear. We got a Hino truck. I've actually got a new truck this year. Um, we got a gooseneck. It's got a shower and it's got a freezer and it's got a fridge and it's got a bit of aircon that we use when we're eating and that sort of thing. Um, the men sleep. We've got an old cabin. This time we've got a, a big horse sleep. A couple of men sleep in the girl. There's a girl here. She sleeps in the back of the truck. You know, our day starts off at. 4.30, I get up and normally get up a little bit before them and get a bit organised before them, and then um, their wake-up calls, I start the generator. We've got a, a generator for power. We have a cup of coffee and a biscuit or something, and we don't have much. We've got 20-odd dogs got to be put away. The horses have got to be caught and saddled. The, then their yards, which are made up of electric yards, electric tape, have got to be rolled up and steel pegs, and that's got to be put away, and then you've got to bring the cattle out, take down the yard and put their yard away. And then uh, we start off our day. Well, we normally wait till our cattle start to fill their bellies up a little. You know, when they first come out in the morning, they're all pretty mad, hungry and charging along. And then by about 9 o'clock, they're starting to slow down. So one of us will probably take the camp up ahead a little, cup of tea, whatever, and, and put some breakfast on, which is normally, you know, a few sausages, a bit of bacon or something. So we have a bit of breakfast. And then we, um, we like to get to water by summertime, you know. We like to be there by 10 o'clock. These days, we have our own water truck. We have a 40,000 litre tanker, which we water the cattle with. Some of Queensland waters have been maintained very well by some of the shires, but a lot of them have done nothing, and so it's easy for us to cut our own water. These steers that we do, you know, quite a fair bit different than um, the drought cow and calf type job, but, you know, we have lunch, and then we walk to night camp, and then all the jobs, all that, and out comes all the horse yards and the dog chain. We peg a chain. It's got all individual short chains on one long chain, and each dog has his own position on that. The dogs have got to be fed and watered and um, horses have got to be nose bagged. We feed them with a nose bag on them. If someone goes in, normally I do the cooking. You know, I, like, I like my food, so I like to, <laughs> I like to, uh, I like to cook myself. 
<laughs> you know, a lot of young people aren't taught to cook anymore. You know, most people, you know, had to do some cooking, but um, I've had girls with me that didn't know the veggies had to boil to cook, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not joking, I'm serious. <laughs> do you wonder how some of them survive, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do, yeah. And that um, mobile phones are our biggest enemy. Yes. But, um, you know, like someone cooks a feed and then everybody's got a shower. I like to, you know, I tell people when they get here, if you want to keep up with driving, which is seven days a week and they're long days, you've got to go to bed, you know. You've got to go, you've got to try and sleep as much as the cattle sleep. So, you know, we push to be in bed by half by seven, eight o'clock. And winter time earlier than that. But we want to be trying to sleep while the cattle sleep, otherwise you won't keep up. And with, you know, I, I employ kids that come out of town or wherever they come from, and, you know, a lot of them are used to wandering about half the night and sleeping half the day. Well, <laughs> it takes them a long time to turn their life around and, you know, realise they've got to get into bed and go to sleep. Yeah, they soon learn a week or so, look, this has got to go every day, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've had on my one bloke who used to bring cattle for Plony and Prudential out of the Territory down through the Barclay and down to Cooper, down to uh, Krongaloo for that fattening country, and one bloke, he sat on the edge of his bed like this. We were actually waiting to pick the cattle up, and he pulled on a pair of joggers. I said, what are you doing, mate? He said, oh, I'm going for a jog. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, well, make the most of it, because I said, you won't be doing that in a week or two. <laughs> oh, no, he said, I, I keep fit. Hey, I'll, I'll soon, uh, soon put the old sneakers back in the bag, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I can keep you fit. You don't need to go jogging. <laughs> yeah, no, I keep them fit. Yeah, especially when they give me a little hint that they might need a little bit more, I can soon do it for them. That's right. So how many people in your, you know, you've got 2,000 head on the road. How many ringers have you got with you? There's four of us there now. I like five, especially in the, you know, with the trappies. When we're on highways, we try and do what we call lollipopping. So someone's got to be in the lead if it's a bad bend or a hill or whatever to to control the traffic. Yep. You know, just when that means just ride up on the road and wave them and point down to the cattle, just wave your hand like a slow down sign. And um, I'm very strict about that because it takes two seconds for someone to come around the bend and run into them. So. And even though we've got right away and we've got our signs up, if someone pranks pretty bad, it's not a good feeling, you know? No. And we, we have a lot of success with that traffic control, and I'm really particular about how they do it. They don't just sit on the side of the road and look like a statue. They've got to ride up there and look confident and dictate to that traffic. Look down the road, mate, the scatter, you know, be confident in what they do. Yep. If they sit there like a, a meek and mild, the people just say, oh, look at that, and they just keep on driving. It's, it's about how you approach them to how they operate. Man, we get the odd idiot now and again, but most of the traffic is very good. These mine traffic up here have been great. And last year we brought cattle from Claremont to Theodore and, and the mine traffic were good. But then I think they give a lot of public awareness as well. Yeah. You know, the mines do and the, the councils up here have started doing the same thing. So how long do you think it takes before the cattle sort of realise that it's easier just to, you know, they stay off the road naturally after a while, don't they, you know? Yeah, well, what they do is, if you're in a bit of a hurry, naturally start pushing them along. They'll come up on the road to walk along. But if you give them room, they realise it feeds off the road and, and give that lead plenty of room to get away. Then next thing, they'll all drop down off the road. There are times when our cattle are right up on the road, but for different reasons, you know, we've had to hold them up for some reason or we've had to push them along to get to the water in time. So, you know, once you start pushing them up, they come up onto the road. Mm. But we do try and help traffic with the best we can. Um, if we, We're a little short in at the moment, but quite often I'll, I'll have the ringers trotting up and down through the middle of the cattle, opening them up. Like a three or four cars are going slow there, but we'll trot ahead of them and split the cattle off the road for them. Yeah. So how many kilometres a day must you move? You know, there's regulations around all of that sort of stuff. Well, the Act states that you've got to travel 10K every day or part of a day. Mm. And 10K is not a long way with dry cattle. 
it's a long way to carry cars if you're trying to average that. But you can average ten k a day with the sort of cattle that we drove without you know, any 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 big problem, unless you've got rain, of course, or or whatever. Um, there could be a hold up, but it's not hard to do ten k a day. So you get to a small town. Do you actually have to drive the cattle through the towns now, or are they all reorganise their stock routes to make it a little bit easier for you? No, well, the stock routes are all pretty similar. Like around town, there's always a hell of a lot of lanes and different bits of stock routes and access roads, and you know any road becomes a stock route. So where the towns built out, like Roma, for instance, I've just you know in my time of driving through Roma. I live at Roma now, but I never used to. Um, they just kept moving the stock out to another lane, like to come in to access the what they call Gammy's Plain is the main water in Roma. Yeah. You know, I think it's moved three times since I first wished to sort of come straight up the middle. You know, now there's a lot of housing there and that sort of thing, so they just moved over another lane and then another lane and that type of thing happened. We walked cattle into Dolby, um, Georgina cattle for Peter Hughes. He's Georgina pastor. We walked him in a Dolby sale there. Oh, I suppose it's two years ago now. Um, we actually went right up the street into the sale. But Angus Rains, um, Peter Hughes' is manager from Crawlerville, he came and bought a couple of ringers and his boy. And um, I had my boy, I had a fair, fair few extras, um, a couple of bloods from out from town, and uh, they just went up the street. I think most of the people were asleep. I don't think they even realised we went there. You know, we planned it well and, you know, everybody, if he blocked the house yard here, then he moved up the next gap and, and everything was kept pretty smooth and quiet and it was early. Like I said, I don't think, you know, I reckon most of those houses, I'd place an old lady or something wandered out with the dressing gown on and had a bit of a look, but most of them were probably still sleeping. Yeah. I remember in Ralston a few years ago, the water was up and they had to actually walk cattle across the bridge through the town and sort of created a bit of interest for a few people for half an hour or so. I wondered how often that does happen. Yeah, well, there's... Um you know, some of those New South Wales places, the exit route still goes into town. Mm. Uh, Mungandai, you go across that bridge there and walk straight into the police station, right straight <laughs> bang into town. You, you know? do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, we've walked quite a few up over that bridge, and they, when they change the bridge, it's a bit rattly, but, you know, we get it done. You get plenty of horses in the lead to lead the cattle, and by the time you get down that country, your cattle are pretty well broke, you know. Yeah. Do you come across many that just start out with thinking this is going to be a mini rodeo for the next couple of weeks or are most people's cattle now sort of fairly well weaned and, and broke? Yeah, it's pretty hard to predict. Like these cattle we've got now have been bought all out of the north. They've bought a heap of different lines of cattle in the one mob, you know, and that way you'd think, well, this is going to be a pretty tough show. But if you start those first few days off right with them, they don't take long to get good. Like, and sometimes you can pick up a mob of cattle, you think these fellas are going to be a cup of tea and they'll jump at night, and, which means rush and smash gear and kill a few and all that type of thing, and, and the cattle, you think they're going to be right. So they are a little unpredictable, you know? Yeah. Touching on that, explain to the person who doesn't understand. If, if you hear someone say, um, the cattle rushed last night, what that actually means for you and what's involved in rectifying the issue. Well, they'd probably be more familiar, the people that aren't aware of what we do, or, or cattle talk, or drover talk, um, they're probably associated with a stampede. You yeah. know, they've probably seen a movie, an American movie, where they have a stampede. So what do the cattle do? I believe they dream. I believe cattle dream. And if they're a bit stressy, I've been riding around them, and one will just leap up in the air and leap out into the middle of them like you've had a nightmare. You know, like yourself, you've jumped up and... You know, it all feels so real. And then when one jumps, they all take off and they'll 
they'll just smash whatever's around them. I've seen them smash, you know, full panels, full screens, defences, yards, the whole deal. They just absolutely panic. Mm. And then you've got to get around them and pull them up. When Arthur Earl went back, you would have known of Arthur Earl, no doubt. Yes, yes. He went back and bought all that country in Queensland anyway. He um, he got me to walk a mob from Macunda at Macunda at Middleton. Uh, we walked him to Blackall. And um, I had his, I must have been, I think he must have been a second nephew or whatever because he's had such a thing, but he's a relation, a young fella. Mm. We were camped on the Ironstone Ridges at Woodstock and these you know, sleeping with the boots on and the horses fully saddled and bridled in my hand. I just lay back and fully dressed, just doze a little and waiting for it to happen. And um, always had some night dogs, lead dogs, that when the cattle jump, a couple, one of the boys' jobs is to let some of the dogs off. So they go straight to the lead of the cattle. And once the dog goes to the lead of the cattle in the dark, they put their head down and they pull up quicker for a dog than they do anything else. You know, a galloping horse seems to keep them galloping, and, but they pull up pretty quick. So anyway, this... Um, Hutt was his name. He's, he used to put his stretcher out from the camp a little. And I said to him, mate, you don't want to put your camp out there. If these cattle jump, you could get probably cleaned up. Anyway, he still used to take his camp out, his bed out there. Anyway, these cattle jumped. And on an ironstone ridge in the middle of a quiet night, it just sounded, it sounds like a freight train coming. That's exactly what it, if you hear, if you're camped in the, in the bush and you hear a road train coming down a highway, like a three trailers roaring down the highway, that's what it sounds like when they go. Mm. Anyway, um, these cattle, jump and they came straight out the camp and I stepped on my horse and as I left young fella let some dogs go and this huck is standing up on his stretcher, he had an old shoe stretcher with a swag on it which we had then, we used to hang him on the side of the old camp, it's got a bit more modern since those days but <laughs> he's um, jumping up and down on his swag on the top of the stretcher and, and uh, as I galloped off I looked back and I saw him I thought you know what the hell, anyway when I got the cattle pulled up I sent word back to one of the boys for him to bring me down a quart pot of coffee because it was dark. And I said, well, I'll keep them on this big flat where I'll pull them up till we get some moonlight and then I'll bring them back on the camp again. But I'll just keep them held here till it becomes light. And I said, tell that hut to bring me down a quart pot full of coffee. So he brings it down. I said, mate, what's the go? And those cattle jump, you're jumping up and down on your bed. He said, well, in those days, I had some man-eating dogs. My dogs were renowned for it being savage. <laughs> And he said, well, when I heard them boys letting them dogs go, <laughs> he said, I didn't know whether to go for the camp and take the dogs on or stand and take a chance with the cattle. <laughs> so, so he said, I took my chance with the cattle. Anyway, he wrote a poem about that rush that night, the Woodstock rush, and it was on the wall in Middleton, but I'm not sure whether it's still there. I think I've no idea that someone might have taken it to a museum or somewhere, but it, yeah, that, he wrote a really good poem about it. <laughs> but they're very dangerous. They kill, they kill one another. Um, when they rush, they break legs, they run into stumps, uh, whatever's there, they'll take out a, take out a full fence, uh, whatever's there, they'll, they'll tip trailers over on part of the camp. Yeah, they're, they're pretty dangerous. I, I came into Winton with a mob of cattle and there's a place just outside Winton where all the drovers used to camp and there's railed corner, like it was a full strain of railing one side to the corner, then back rails, three rails and a gate either side, like probably 100 metres either way from the corner. And the bloke that owned the property come down and said, you go camp in that corner. These were wood diesel cattle from, from Wakanda. These were these cattle that jumped at the, iron, <laughs> like the Ironstone Ridge. And I said, mate, these cattle are pretty jumpy. I said, they're pretty jumpy. He said, mate, so we've just been camping here since white men started walking cattle. He said, that's a good camp. You camp here. <laughs> so we did. Nine o'clock, they jumped. They took one full side of this railing, completely smashed it. The gate's locked to the ground. Mm. 
We, we brought them back onto the camp. Three o'clock in the morning, they did the other side. So, <laughs> <laughs> this bloke comes down in the morning and it, the whole thing is just laying on the ground flat. Like someone had run along there with the dozer and just pushed it all down. He said, I can't believe this. <laughs> I said, well, I tried to tell you. <laughs> but I've actually, I've seen them in the night. Um, we had some cattle near Bullier that had jumped and... I was bringing the cattle back onto camp, which we do. We get them back and settle them down because of camp near our camp and we can watch them and get them back onto their own camp. And every time I got close to camp, away they'd go again. And I'm thinking, what's going on? So eventually I got them organised enough to get up and have a look. And these two bullocks had hit head on where they were braked, where braked means where we built their yards, their yeah. electric fence yard. They'd hit head on. One fellow was dead and the other fellow had broken his neck. And they were face to face laying there, but the one that had broke his neck was kicking. So every time I got the cattle place, in the dark, he'd start kicking. So the way they'd get a big fright and the way they'd go again. Oh, gosh. But they are they are quite dangerous. Like, I've been, you know, you've got to have your wits about you when you're, when you're on a mob of Russian cattle. You know, that, none of those old stories are bullshit. They're, you know, they're very dangerous. They're dangerous, yeah. So, you know, they talk about, you know, there used to be the night watchman. Do you still have someone who's sort of on, I guess, Duty, so to speak, for later into the evening. We do if they're if the cattle are, you know, jumpy. Mm. Um, but normally, with the electric fencing, so they're not going to walk off because they've got electric wire around them. Where in the days of the night watchman, you know, he had to keep riding around so they didn't get up and walk off. Yeah. Um, so our cattle aren't going to walk off, but they are going to rush. So you know. I find it it's safer to have that young fella in bed than walking around the up street tripping over a log and snorting or going on and frightening the whole show, you know. <laughs> so instead of in bed. <laughs> and, um, if they jump, well, if, you know, when early days we had night horses saddled up and, and we these days too we've got motorbikes you can jump on if it's open country to get around them pretty quick. Mm. Um, you know, we've still got lead dogs and that type of thing. But, yeah, no, we don't actually do that. You know, the old days, they did their couple of hours watch each and then they went back to bed. And, you know, we don't we don't do that. You could write a book, Bill, on uh, on ringers, I'd reckon. Oh, I want, a, I want an award when I'm finished. <laughs> I reckon Australia Day Award or something like that, putting up with them. <laughs> I, I could guarantee you probably would deserve that in spades. <laughs> yeah, I reckon, I reckon. I was only saying that today, this old bloke to come along, you know. I said that. Uh, yeah, but um, that's what we do. Mm. And, uh, look, you know, I've got a lot of work out of some young blokes that have come from some pretty ordinary homes and um, haven't had much ahead of them in life. But uh, they've came and worked with me and they've learned to be horsemen and drovers and breed their cattle. And the biggest problem now, in the early days, it was quite easy to get a young bloke going, but now you've got the phone opposition with their phone. You know, that's the yeah. biggest problem we've got. You must nearly breathe a sigh of relief when you get to somewhere and there's no reception. Ah. Uh, yeah, but some of them are that addicted to them. I think they're worse without them than they are with them. <laughs> so are you suffering the same problem that everyone in rural Australia is suffering with at the moment, trying to actually get staff? Well, I've had a really good one for about three years now, and I don't know why. I don't know. Well, especially for two years. Um, I've said to people maybe it was okay, but there's a few more guys going there, but I don't think that's got much to do with it. But I have had a good run. I've you know, I've had times early days when you're lucky to keep one ringer with you. You'd be going along with one ringer. But um, I said to a bloke that it actually worked for me, Dale Harrison, I must be getting easy to get along with. He said, no, you wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I don't really know why, but um, I've got three good people with me there now. They're, you know, 
And there's an Israeli girl there, like she's been in Australia for a while, I think since she's 14 or 15. I think her, her mother's an Australian, but uh, she grew up in Israel and she's a really good kid. She's tough and she's learned the game. Got another young fellow from Roma, he's a good kid, and another older bloke from Volgabilla, he's been with me, what, third trip now? And, you know, to get someone to do two or three trips in a row, well, two of them here have done three trips. So, you know, normally one trip was enough. They'd had enough and they'd move on. But, uh, yeah, these blokes are back. So I still think I must have got a bit easier to get along with. Well, you run with that. (laughs) (laughs) So from a business perspective, you know, you're on the road now with a mob. You'll have an expected land date that you've calculated with the owner. Have you got another mob straight away or do you like to go home and just sort of regroup for a month or so and then go and look for the work? Well, I've never had to advertise for a job. No. Um, but these people, the Conways that I work for now, I think I've done five straight to them. Olivia Martin and her brother and sister, um, Dennis Conway's children. Dennis is still in the picture as well. Um, they buy the right sort of cattle that we can walk on the stock out and actually put some condition on. So with their backgrounding enterprise, so it suits them to buy their cattle, put them together, walk them home. I mean, you know, that's what stock out's for. It's considered for travelling stock. And if you put the right sort of cattle on, it works well. And uh, they've kept me pretty busy, and I think they will in the future. Yeah. So in relation to the stock routes, are they still well-maintained or is it something that we shouldn't be very proud of because they've been let to become a bit of a cot case and a basket case and no one really wants to own them and look after them? Well, I think it's a it's a huge issue. Like, uh, stock outs not only for travelling stocks. There's so many uses for stock outs, like all your fun runs, um, all your power, water, all your lines, your roads. Everything is a stock out. And the stock out, is government land, is owned by the government, the Queensland government, it's managed by local government. It's everybody's land. You're entitled to come and camp on that land. There's watering and camping reserves where you can water, uh, you can come and camp. Um, you can have a fun run. You can have a, what do they call, a bash with the, with the cars. They all follow the stock route. There's so many different uses for the stock route. And I think we're such a lucky country to have that stock route. And there's a big push now. They're calling it review, wah, wah, wah. But it's, at the end of the day, it's a land grab by a small minority of people that use the land for no cost and they don't want travelling stock opposition. There's a lot to it. It's very political. But, you know, my words are, and I've said it a lot of times, it's one of the greatest national parks in the world, the stock route system. It's all connected. Leave it as it is. Leave it to be everybody's land. Everybody can use it. I don't see why it should become... Some of these councils have just put a proposal to the Queensland Government to actually own the stock route. They'll buy them off to the Queensland Government and own them. Well, you know, it's tough enough doing any sort of movement, you know, whether it be power, water, whatever, now, when it's all under one ban. Imagine trying to deal with each separate council. And it needs to be connected. It's like a chain. You can't take a link. It'd be like saying, right, you drive to Mount Isa. And each town makes their own road rules. So when you get through long as you're going, shit, what's the road rules here? We're meant to be doing 30? We're meant to be doing 100? How much is the fine going to be, you know? That's what happened in New South Wales with their PP boards. They're a different setup, but the PP board controls, which is a passport protection board, maybe two or three sides in each protection board. But they operate, manage and own, well, I don't know about own, but anyway, they, they control the stock routes. And because of being so top-heavy and the, the smaller areas, it's all fell down. And to generate finance, they have adjusted all the stock routes, so they've fenced it, and they have feed-out permits, so it's all fenced and feed-out permits. So 
the average Joe, if, if he sees a three or four barbed wire fence or electric fence, he's not going to think that, well, that's my country. I can go and access that. Yes, yeah. But not only that, um, for the environment, um, I'm really worried for the environment's sake. Like, I see a lot of a lot more Queensland close up than most people. And I'm not a greenie and I'm not a straight-out animal rights person. I like animals. But with these, they call them exclusion fences, but I call them wildlife fences, being erected. Everybody is controlling their own environment. It's very unhealthy. Like, the, the, the deterioration in wildlife is unbelievable. I can remember the first time I walked cattle out of the Northern Territory down the Cooper, and the bird life was phenomenal. And it wouldn't be a fraction of what it was. And these wildlife fences, they don't only stop, you know, they're, they're saying they're dingo fences, but they're built to stop the kangaroos. So they don't only stop the kangaroos, they stop the porcupines, they stop the emus, they stop the guanas, they stop everything. And I think someone, you know, I've been on to Wildlife Australia and uh, they actually work for the government. They all sit on their hands. They're not aware. No one's aware what's going on. I wish I could find someone with political clout that was aware of what's happening to the uh, wildlife in such a rapid way. You need to get a couple of them built and take them with you for a couple of trips and go and just have a look at this with your own two eyes rather than sitting in a glass house in Canberra or, or Brisbane and making your rules. Well, when they put the new act up, that was 2009, they, we, Tony Purcell and I were on a board to make recommendations to the Minister for the New Stock Route Act. We had them convinced that we're going to busload, we're going to go for a tour, but then the squeaky little wheels, like AgForce and local governments, that their their um, representation was actually crazy as it used the land for no cost. They realised that these people were going to see some things they didn't want them to see, so they all got knocked on the head. Yeah. We actually looked like it was going to happen. But, um, yeah, I'd love to find somebody that was willing to get out and just have a look at what is happening. I wouldn't like to think you've great-grandkids or whatever have got to go to a zoo to see a kangaroo and leave you, you know? That's exactly right. And don't worry, it's not as silly as it sounds. You know, I'm not stupid. I realise that we had a kangaroo problem, but it needs to be controlled by the government. It cannot let everybody control their own environment because greed takes over then. Yeah, yeah. And when greed takes over, it's like the tree clearing, you know. Greed takes over. Like, you know, I've just walked up around here in North Queensland and the trees have been pulled off it and they're growing cotton on it and they're growing crops on it. There's even one place that both spill his house on it. You know, and the, the local government turns a blind eye. You know, you, you think to yourself, well, here I am trying to abide by the rules on the stock round, and here these fellas are growing cotton on it up here, and, and the fellas that are doing this review on the stock routes are saying, like Ag Force and like Elements, whatever, put the price up for travelling stock. We use probably 10% of the network for travelling stock. The rest of it is being used for little or no cost, the grazing that land for nothing. So, you know, the political side of it is, the bottom line is, these fellas want that land and they don't want the opposition on it, you know. But it's so important to to the Queensland people, the Australian people, to be able to know that that is their land. This, let's look after it. Let's look after these. And the weeds and, you know, there's stuff that supervisors and that on these are meant to be keeping weeds going off. The weeds are so out of control, especially up here in the north. Like, it's unbelievable. There's some good shires too, don't worry. Like, Roma is a very good shire. They've uh, built a lot of water improvements. They do a lot of weed control. Black all the same. Um, we see some even Western Downs are uh, hooking in, you know, because I've got a coordinator normally at the top that's, that's taking the bit in his mouth and he's having a go. But it depends on their council, whether the council will let them, you know. Yeah, that's right. 
Bill, it's been a great chat and I'm sure we could get you back and you could tell us another hundred stories about individual droves and times. It's been great to talk to you and we'll look forward to catching up with you and maybe seeing you somewhere on the road shortly. No worries. That's good. I've got plenty of stories. I'm sure you have. That'll be excellent. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. Safe travels. Okay. See ya. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you. 